Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to week two in our new series called Faces, F-A-C-E-S, of another, where we're putting some flesh on, if you will, putting a, a face to Jesus' new and singular command that we love one another. Now, if you were here last week, we looked at this. Both Jesus, whom the four gospel accounts that open your New Testament are written about, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Paul, who wrote the majority of the New Testament after those four gospels, they both go into great detail regarding how we're to accomplish this new command. This little phrase, one another, in Jesus' command, well, we run right by it usually. But that phrase, which is derived from a Greek word, that word in the Greek meant to one another, each other, mutually. There was some uh, reciprocity, right? Reciprocally, one to another. It occurs not once or twice, but a hundred times in the New Testament. And nearly 60 of those occurrences are very specific commands that teach us how and, and sometimes how not to relate to well, one another. And so, since we can't study them, at least study them all, excuse me, uh, we're going to look at just five of them over the next bunch of weeks. And so last week, we looked at the necessity to forgive one another. Now we're going to move on and learn how to accept one another, care for one another, encourage one another, and submit to one another. F-A-C-E-S, faces, because here's the truth. You've never looked into the face of another who didn't long for or need to be forgiven, accepted, cared for, encouraged, or submitted to, including the face you see in the mirror every single morning. And so jump back with me in and take a look at Paul's commands to accept one another. And to do that, we're going to take a boat ride with Jesus. Now, if you know anything about getting into the boat with Jesus, especially if you were one of his original 12 disciples, you know getting in a boat with Jesus is actually not the best idea because boat trips with Jesus usually don't turn out that well, right? Famously, they wind up bad with storms and waves and near-death experiences. But this morning, I want to tell you the backstory of those two boat trips where Jesus is going to help us to understand what he was up to, maybe from a new perspective. One that doesn't just focus on him quieting the storms on the sea. You see, we like those stories because those stories, they comfort us. And so we talk about those lessons a lot. But this morning, we're going to look at a different lesson. One that, look, if I'm honest, is not quite as comforting but one that if we would embrace would literally cause a tsunami in the human heart. Luke was a first century physician and he set out to record an orderly account of the ministry, death, life, and resurrection of Jesus. He records this in chapter eight of his gospel. Jesus had been ministering from town to town when Luke writes, now Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him, but they were not able to get near him because of the crowd. And so somebody told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to see you. And Jesus' words here are somewhat stunning, maybe even a little cold if you haven't heard them before. Jesus doesn't dismiss the crowd or, or tell everybody to make some room up front for his family. Instead, he responds this way, my mother and my brothers 
are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. Put another way, perhaps, I think what Jesus was trying to say is, my family, those that are closest to me, those that I am in deepest relation with, are not necessarily those who look like me or come from my family line, my family tradition. They're not necessarily those who share my roots, my history, or my story. My true family, my brothers, sisters, father, and mother, are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. And that means they might look a little bit different than you think. Now please understand, this was not a diss to Mary and James. This was not a, a narrowing down of who family is, who his loved ones were, but actually an expansion. And in order to prove that point, like he seemed to always do, Jesus is about to teach his disciples, including many of us, something they'd never considered before. Because Jesus, he's about to drop a bomb. Next verse. One day, Jesus said to his disciples, Let's, let us go over to the other side of the lake. And since there were no railroads in Jesus' day, he couldn't tell the disciples to hop in the car because they were going to go over to the other side of the tracks. But, guys, this was the first century equivalent. Boys, get in the boat. We're going to go on over to the other side of the lake. And here's why. Because on the other side of the lake was Decapolis, the ten cities. This was largely for the Israelites, enemy territory. Its inhabitants over on the other side, they weren't just unbelieving Gentiles, but according to rabbinic tradition, they were the pagan ancestors of the seven nations of Canaan, the seven enemies of Israel. In Hebrew scriptures, some of you know God had promised to drive these enemies, the, uh, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites out of the promised land. And those were the seven nations of Canaan that were on the other side of the lake. You see, on the other side of the lake, it wasn't just filled with pagans, but pagan temples. And over there, they were celebrating all kinds of violence and immoral sexuality and greed. On the other side of the lake, over there, they celebrated everything that Israel stood against. I mean, if you just want to sum it up in a picture, the pig, which was the most unclean animal in Israel because of dietary and Levitical cleaning laws, the pig was regarded on the other side of the lake as sacred. And not only that, it was used in worship. That's how different the people on the other side of the lake were. That's how hostile they were to the beliefs of the people on the Galilean side of the lake, which is why the Jews regarded the other side of the lake as the place where Satan dwelt. I mean, it was, to, to them, it was a place of anti-God beliefs and behaviors. It, it was dark, it was evil, it was oppressive, it was demonic. I mean, no Galilean, let alone any rabbi, would even find himself dead on the other side of the lake. And then one day, Jesus says, guys, get in the boat. 
we're going on to the other side of the lake. John Ortberg in his book, Who Is This Man? He describes it this way. What is Jesus doing? I mean, didn't he know that the kingdom is for our side? I mean, it's almost as if he didn't know that, that this is the other side. It's almost as if he thought that it was his side. It's almost as if he thought every side belonged to him or, or that he belonged to every side. It's almost as if he thought all the peoples of the earth were now going to be blessed through him. Even the seven nations of Canaan. And so what happens when you get to the other side? Well, as you can imagine, on the other side, Jesus isn't greeted by throngs of adoring worshipers. Instead, when Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a, a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man hadn't worn clothes or even lived in a house, but he'd, he'd lived in the tombs. And I mean, you got to imagine Peter and James and John kind of rowing ashore and looking at Jesus going, we knew it. We told you, Jesus. This is why we don't go. People like us don't hang out on this side of the lake. I think we've seen enough now, Jesus. I think we proved our point. It's time to go back to our side of the lake. Luke goes on. He says that, when he saw Jesus, he cried out and he fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I'm begging you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. And Jesus asked him, What's your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. Now some of you know what happens next. The spirits asked Jesus to be sent into a bunch of pigs that were nearby, and, and when they were, the pigs rushed to their destruction in the same lake Jesus had just emerged from. But the man, I mean, the man was set free. Now, what's interesting is the reaction from the people over there on the other side of the lake. The people went out to see what had happened, and when they came to Jesus, they found the man for, from whom the demons had gone out sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind. And they were amazed? No. Astonished? No. They were afraid. You see, those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. And then all the people of the region, all of the people of the region of uh, Gerasenes, well, they fell to their knees and worshiped Jesus. Well, they repented of their sin. They acknowledged that the God of the Israelites was really the God and that they'd been wrong all these years. No, that's not what they did. They asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. And so Jesus got into the boat and left. Why? Why were they so afraid? Well, because this Jesus obviously had power. Clearly he could heal. And who knew what else he was capable of doing? 
But there was just one problem with this guy. Yeah, he had great power, but he wasn't one of them. He was, well, he was from the other side. And they felt the same way about the other side as the Israelites felt about them. What follows, though, is kind of interesting. Jesus agrees to go, but before he does, he, he doesn't preach any sermons. He pronounces no judgment on the people. Instead, Jesus very simply calls the now demon-free man over and gives him just a simple request. He says, return home and tell how much God has done for you. And so the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. Now, here's what I want you to see. Many of us think the story ends there, but it doesn't. Because some of you know that Jesus took the boys on another boat ride sometime later. And many of the same story elements exist. There was a storm, and the disciples were afraid, and Jesus calmed their fears. I mean, we read that story to our kids all the time before we put them in the bed at night so, they, so they're comfortable. But I can't help but wonder how the world would have changed if we read them the rest of the story. Because guess what happens when the storm is over? Guess where they land? Decapolis again. But something is very different this time. Mark records it this way. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus, and they ran. But this time, not away or to hide, this time they ran throughout the whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard that he was. And wherever he went, into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. Why? What changed? Well, it would appear that the man Jesus had freed had done just what Jesus had asked. Apparently, he took Jesus seriously, and he had gone all over town and told him what Jesus had done for him which led the people on the other side of the lake to a stunning conclusion and reversal of thinking and actions. Their new conclusion, which had to be hard to believe, was this. Jesus, the Israelite, cared for someone on their side of the lake. Jesus, the Israelite, cares for the Canaanites. Now, guys, I want you to hear me on this now. You need to know this is not an incident, an isolated incident in the life of Jesus. In, in Mark chapter 6, Jesus feeds a crowd of thousands on Israel's side of the lake. You know that story. Some of you might even know how many baskets of food were left over when he fed them on the Israelite side of the, the lake. <clears throat> how many were left over? Twelve. Why? Because there's powerful imagery there reminding the Israelites that God cares for the 12 tribes of Israel. God cares for his people. In Mark chapter 8, though, Jesus feeds a crowd on the other side of the lake. And get this, church. Do you know how many baskets of food were left over this time? Seven. Why? 
well, maybe Jesus wanted the seven nations of Canaan to know that God cared for them too. Because it turns out that Jesus was good news for everybody, no matter what side of the lake, no matter what side of the cultural divide you found yourself on. Jesus wasn't, and church, hear me on this now, Jesus was and is on both sides. And so the question begs asking then, whose side are you on? Whose side do people think that we're on? Because here's the sociologically proven truth. As human beings, we're really good at taking sides. I mean, we are an us and them people. But Jesus isn't. Miroslav Volf noted that tendency to exclude the other, which religious leaders in Jesus' day just like hating your enemy last week was regarded as a great virtue, so was excluding others. But Jesus attempts to teach over and over and over again that this is a great sin. Some of you know the hostility that ex existed in Jesus' day between the Israelites and the Samaritans. The Samaritans were considered by the Israelites to be a, a mix of spiritually corrupt pagan foreigners that had created a, a religion for themselves that the Jews believed to be heresy. To the Jew, a Samaritan was more revolting than even a Gentile or a pagan. Samaritans, they believed, were half-breeds who defiled the true religion and the true God and, and who often were simply referred to demeaningly as dogs. And that's super fascinating. Considering how much time Jesus spends with them and on them. You know that one day, some of you would know that Jesus was one day on his way to Jerusalem and he, he wanted to stop at a Samaritan village. But the scriptures teach us that they were not welcoming. And so his disciples do what we often do. They ask, Lord, do you want us to call down heaven to destroy them? And of course, they thought, like oftentimes we think, that this is going to please God. We're going to take a stand amongst these half-breeds and show them. Yet Luke shares Jesus' response. Jesus turned and rebuked them. Not the Samaritans, his disciples. And again, guys, not an isolated instant. Because Jesus' ministry is filled with Samaritan stories. Jesus befriends a five-time married Samaritan woman, and she becomes a great evangelist of him, of his. Jesus heals ten lepers, and he, he tells us that only one, the Samaritan, returned to thank him. In fact, he told the story about an Israelite, a priest, a, Le a Levite, and a Samaritan. And the hero in this story, you guessed it, the Samaritan. And while there are hardly any Samaritans around anymore, they are remembered almost more than any other ancient people group. And almost every time with the word good attached. Why? Because of someone who was supposed to be against them. Jesus treats people on the other side as if they are people on our side, his side. And so the question for those who would follow him this morning is, do you? Do I? Do we? 
I mean, really, what are those sides? Whose side is it you're on? Because the history of the movement of Jesus, unfortunately, is best known for taking sides. There are good people and there are bad people. There are righteous people and unrighteous people. There are people who are in and there are people that are out. Over the centuries, we've kind of communicated, sometimes subtly and sometimes not so, that if you dress like us, believe like us, vote like us, listen to the music we listen to, go to the schools we go to, attend the churches we attend, well then you're in. But if you don't, you're out. Unfortunately, Christianity has become a very black and white thing. But Jesus didn't seem to see people this way, even though far often we do, far too often. In fact, this similar argument was raging in Rome when Paul set out to write the church a letter. There was a big fight going on. Things had gotten stirred up over who was in with God, who was a real follower with God, and who was out. Who had the rules and the regulations right? This time it was regarding what kind of food you can eat and what you couldn't. And to that audience and into that argument, Paul writes this. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the fascinating thing. What was that attitude that we were to have towards one another? Paul would clarify it. Accept one another. Accept one another. Accept one another then just as Christ accepted you. Accept one another just as Christ accepted you. Church, I'm afraid that we might be in, in need for an attitude adjustment. Because how did Jesus accept me? How did he accept you? Well, the same way he accepted the people of Decapolis, the, the people on the other side of the lake who thought differently and, and looked different and worshiped differently and voted differently. How does he accept us? Well, the same way he accepted the Samaritans, who all of his followers thought were detestable. I mean, it really had to be hacking them off. The Samaritans hadn't cleaned themselves up yet. They hadn't begun to worship the God of the Israelites yet. Their diet was wrong, or their, their stories were wrong, their beliefs were all screwed up, their behavior was still abhorrent. Now note, Jesus never approved of any of that. But long before he ever called someone to repent, don't get me wrong, we need to repent. We do need to turn from our sins. Jesus does tell us to go and sin no more, but far before he calls them to repent, he accepts them as people. In fact, I'm going to go even further. He doesn't accept them as people. He calls them his friends. You know, guys, long before I ever repented of my stuff, God accepted me first. Long before I ever accepted Jesus into my heart as my Savior, Jesus accepted me as his friend. 
And how are we to accept one another in a world full of divisiveness? The way Jesus accepted us. I mean, what does it mean to accept one another? Well, that word there in the Greek is the word proslembano, which means welcome and embrace and, and receive into your hearts. You accept, you accept someone the way that you would catch this football. You reach out for them and, and, and draw them in and, and pull them close to yourself. You don't push them away or, well, in the case of the Dallas Cowboys, you fumble them away. But, but you don't do that. You reach out, grab, and pull in. I want to be honest with you. This is not easy. You want to know why? Because I'm just going to be honest. I prefer to be with people who look like me, think like me, worship like me, vote like me. In fact, not only is it not easy, it's unnatural. When people don't want to do what I think they should do, when they act differently, love differently, believe differently, my natural reaction, well, it's either first to try and convince them of their folly and my righteousness. And if I can't, then it's to isolate, ignore, or break relationship with them, to, in a sense, withdraw. I, I have to be honest with you. You know where I've seen this acceptance issue most unfortunately played out, most painfully, honestly, is in, in my years in the church, it, it, it's in families. Way too often in the parent-child relationship. I mean, look, let's be honest. If you've got kids, they're going to eventually disappoint you. You know why? Because they are human beings created in God's image and not, well, yours. And so they tend to have minds of their own, and sometimes they look a little different. They don't do their hair the way you want them to, to do it. They put tattoos on themselves you wouldn't be wild about. They might act different than you'd like them to, love different than you'd like them to, vote different than you'd like them to. And since we parents, let's, let's be honest, as they get older, we don't have all that many weapons to fight with. We really only have two, and so we set out guns a-blazing. We try with our first uh, uh, our weapon. Our first weapon is to lecture and, and convince. I did not raise you to think this way, or I can't believe somebody I would bring up could act this way or believe this. Sometimes, sometimes we lay the disappointment thing out there. Oh, I'm just so disappointed in you. Heck, we'll, we're not above trying to, the shame game. Oh my gosh, what is going to happen when grandma finds out? This is going to break her heart. Now, I know right now in the audience to whom I'm speaking, at a confidence level of, I don't know, somewhere over 50%, I'm sure, over 50% of you either heard those words spoken over you or you've spoken them over someone who has not done what you wanted to or turned out the way you wanted them to be. And so words and lectures, they're our first weapon. But then, 
If they don't work, and I, you know, I've raised four kids now, and I can tell you a little secret, they almost never work. We always have the nuclear option. The relationship is over button. Well, until you change, until you stop, until you turn around and don't do that anymore, until you say, see things my way, until you break up with him, until you stop this nonsense, well, then I, I want nothing to do with you. You're, you're not welcome in my home anymore. I mean, these are my house and my rules, so you're going to need to get out. And, and I, I want you to know I'll never be at that wedding. You need help with those kids. Don't call me to babysit. Guys, I, I have watched wonderful, mature Christian men of faith threaten their children with not coming to their wedding simply because they didn't agree with something that they did or, or writing them out of their wills because they didn't approve of something. And gentlemen, ladies, parents, those words, the truth is they have very little power to change actions, but guys, they're super powerful in terms of changing hearts and causing generational wounds and, and sin patterns that get handed down from, well, from generation to generation. Oftentimes when I'm, I'm working with families that have had this kind of separation where those kind of words have been spoken and relationships have, have, have been broken up and acceptance was never offered, you can look back to the generations before and see so clearly a pattern. That's the way that, that differences were settled. You know, according to Jesus, there's another way. It's the one another way. Accept one another. Just as Christ accepted you, one writer put it this way, we can't divorce the fact that he accepted us from the way that he accepted us. I mean, Jesus died for us while we were yet sinners while we were his enemies, while we weren't seeking after him. He came looking for us in our lostness, in our helpless condition. You know, he didn't require we clean up our lives or make vows to change or do anything to deserve his love. Like the father of the prodigal son, Jesus ran to us and embraced us and received us and accepted us and welcomed us into his family in spite of our smell and our dirty rags. And John says that he promises the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. That is how we are to accept one another. You know what's funny? Paul told the church in Rome not just the how of acceptance, accept one another the way Christ has accepted us, but he also gave the why. And at this point in this series, maybe this will start to sound a little familiar. Do you know why we're to accept one another? Paul says, in order to bring praise to God. Guys, this is what the whole series is about. Imagine a community of people, not set on an us versus them mentality, a community of people who didn't look alike, think alike, act alike, in this season, vote alike. A community of people who didn't see people as either being in or out, 
but as people, in a sense, being on a journey together towards Christ. The people who were now beginning and at different levels orienting themselves towards God and His will and love and not focusing, delineating our differences. We want to be a people ever moving towards the centrality of Christ. We, we want to invite and help other people to be ever moving towards that too. I mean, what matters is the orientation and the posture of our lives. And when we get that right, when we stop drawing the lines, we're not worried about who, who is us and who is them. We're not worried about who we have to keep out, but we, be, we begin to worry about who it is that we could invite in. I mean, that kind of community, that kind of church, that kind of people who accept one another, receive and draw in one another, who embrace one another despite radical differences, that is the kind of people who would be so unordinary, who would be so strange and peculiar, so unusual, that they would actually bring glory and renown and fame to God. People will take notice because it's so unusual. And guys, when you live this way, one with another, so will your rebel son, so will your prodigal daughter. They'll take notice too. And as you love them and accept them despite your differences, as your acceptance permits you to remain in relationship with them, maybe, just maybe, They'll take heed to whatever it is that you want them to hear. We are to accept everybody. It doesn't mean we're to approve of everything everybody does. Rick Warren put it this way. So no matter what people do or who they do it with or how they do it or how long they do it, you are to love them. You are to accept them. It does not mean that you approve of what they do. See, here's, a, here's, here's the key. God loves you, but it doesn't mean he approves of everything you do. Because love is not saying I approve of everything you do. Love is saying I accept you in spite of what you do. I'm going to close with a story I've shared with you all, I think only one time uh, over the years. In my role, I, I do a lot of reading. I read a lot of books. And honestly, most books, like most movies, I can't remember much of five minutes after I've read them. But there's one paragraph in one book that has shaken my soul so much, it has stayed with me now for over 20 years. I can almost quote it from memory because of the radical nature of acceptance that it showed, especially in the face of, of the historic church's inability to accept one another. Even if we don't approve of one another's behavior. It's, it's from Philip Yancey's book, What's So Amazing About Grace. And in that book, Yancey describes his friendship with a guy named Mel White. Mel White was a ghost writer for a lot of bigwig Christian writers. Francis Schaeffer, Pat Robertson, Oliver North, Billy Graham, uh, Jim and Tammy Faye Baker, Jerry Falwell. And he's now a prominent gay activist. He was, and still is, one of Yancey's closest friends. Yancey wasn't aware of his sexual orientation when their friendship began. 
he is now and their friendship remains. He had repressed and hidden his homosexuality, Mel White. In fact, he was married and he was making a fine career in Christian publishing and, and also he was, he was in ministry. He was a pastor and he was a professor at Fuller Seminary. Yancey writes that, quote, I learned important insights into different people. I would add accepting different people from Mel White's parents. He was quite a controversial figure when he came out, as you can imagine, and a network television crew did a segment in which they interviewed Mel, his wife, his friends, his parents. Remarkably, Mel, uh, Mel's wife continued, believe it or not, to support him and speak highly of him even after the divorce. She even wrote the foreword to the book he wrote. Now, Mel White's parents, Mel White's parents, they were conservative Christians. They were respected pillars of the community. In fact, his father had been the mayor of the city. He had a name and a reputation. And as you can imagine, it, they had a tough time accepting the situation. Well, after Mel broke the news to them, they went through various stages of shock and denial. And at one point, a TV interviewer asked Mel, Mel White's parents on camera, he said, you know what other Christians are saying about your son? They're saying he's an abomination. What do you think of that? And this is the line I, I can't get out of my head. Maybe it's just because I'm a dad. Well, the mother answered in a sweet, quivery voice, he may be an abomination, but he's still our pride and joy. Yancey writes, that line, that's what Yancey had written, that line has stayed with me, guys, because I came to see it as, as a heart-rendering definition of grace. I, I came to see that Mel White's mother expressed how God views each and every one of us. Because in some ways, aren't we all really abominations to God? Haven't we all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God? And yet, somehow, against all reason, God loves and accepts us anyway. Grace. Acceptance declares that we're still God's pride and joy, and so this week, my friends, perhaps it's time for you to take a little boat trip to the other side. Jesus did. They didn't like him, believe him, act like him, look like him, think like him, respect him, honor him, worship him, or believe in him. In fact, they crucified him. But you know what Jesus did? Jesus went to them, and he accepted them just the way they were, in the same way he accepts you. And it was that acceptance of them, it was coming to understand that Jesus from the other side of the lake had come and accepted them and loved them. It was that love and acceptance that won them. May it be so for you. And as we've sung, for your family and your children and their children. Go now, friends. Accept one another then as Christ has accepted you. He accepted you without approving of your behavior. You know that, right? And guys, let's do it remembering in so doing, we will bring glory, fame, and renown to our God and to his Son, Jesus the hope of the world, 
the hope of the other side. I'll see you back here next week. <laughs>